This podcast is brought to you by Google for Games. It takes more than a collection of tools to help you bring your gaming vision to life. With cross-platform solutions that give you access to billions of potential players around the world, Google is your partner to create great games, connect with players, and scale your business. Visit g.co slash Google for Games or go to the link in the podcast description below. And if you ask me, Google for Games is the destination to learn more about game solutions and latest research and insights from Google's gaming teams to help you achieve your goals. If you're not driving or working out while listening to this podcast, I really suggest you fire up that browser and check out Google for Games. Today's global gaming marketplace, your players want to pay how they want, when they want, and where they want. Accepting localized forms of payments and keeping up with what's trending is key to growing your gaming business and to finding new untapped markets. That's where Exola Payments comes in. With just one simple integration, you'll be connected to over 700 localized preferred payment methods on a global scale including bank cards, digital wallets, mobile payments, cash kiosks, gift cards, special offers, and more. Plus, with Exola acting as your merchant of record, they assume the risk of cost of complex VATs, sales taxes, laws, and regulations. Leave every transaction to the experts while you focus on retaining and expanding your audience. You can get started today. Just head over to exola.pro slash paystation or look for the link in the description of this episode. Exola Payments, it's what your gaming business needs to succeed. Welcome to Twig 195, closing in on 200. yeah, I think this week should be actually a pretty short week. We only got three hosts. It's myself, Adam. Ethan's here, and Eric Sufert's here. Um, Eric Kress is in Monaco, I think, looking at cars. <laughs> That's I'm sure some, there's basketball involved. There's basketball somehow. involved. That's a basketball trip for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Miska is lazy. I think. Yeah. There's no reason. He just said oh, he's not coming. Laura's <laughs> busy. Uh, and Laura. Laura's probably traveling. I'm just going to say. We have the three best um, male hosts, I think. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, but yeah, this week's been actually a pretty big week yeah. for news. Um, but I think we're just going to rip through the coverage of it. So I think to start, um, some updates. Sufrit, you want to jump into the ring and <laughs> talk yeah. about hyper Yeah, I'm not going to... I feel like this is a hill that I will absolutely die on. But... 95% of the people working in, in games, and even in mobile games, don't care. Um, but So I'm back from vacation. Uh, thanks for holding down the fort. Uh, I listened to last week's podcast. We had my friend Matei on. Have tremendous respect for Matei. Have hired him into a number of um, projects where his, uh, where his expertise was, was needed. But I disagree with Matei. Um, And what he was discussing last week was um, the changes that Google is implementing to Android around uh, which ad placements and implementations of ads are allowed in Google Play games or in Google Play apps. 
and what they've said, and he walked through the guidelines, but he says, like, no unexpected interstitials. And, and like his point was, like, well, we don't really know what that means, and I think we know what it means. It means the pop-up interstitials that happen mid-game play, right? Sort of apropos of nothing in a hyper-casual game. That's what they're policing, right? And then no, no ads, no inter- full-screen interstitial ads that won't close after 15 seconds. Matei said, well, full-screen interstitial ads close after five seconds. No, they don't. Not all of them. There are some that are trafficked that don't close or where you can't find the X. And that's what Google's talking about. So I think um, you can read the restrictions and I tweeted them out a, couple, like two, a week and a half ago or something. Um, and, and it's very clear what they're trying to do, right? They're trying to police a very specific behavior, but that behavior, I would argue, and this is my argument, right? Is the foundation of the hyper casual economy, right? So I, 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 just some background here. I published a tweet saying, I think these changes will absolutely kill the hyper casual category. And then there were some news articles with admon consultants and hyper casual gaming CEOs saying, no, I don't think so. Right. Not a lot of substance to the arguments. It was just, no, I don't think so. And then this news article basically presented this as, well, I guess there's two sides to this argument because here's someone saying for these reasons, the hyper casual gaming category will be killed by these changes. And here's people saying, no, I don't think so. And that's two sides to an argument. That's not two sides to an argument, right? That's just, that's just noise, right? That's just sort of like unsubstantiated pushback. And here's what I would say. And I could be wrong about this, by the way. It's my thesis. Here's what I would say. And I'm working on a post to try to flesh this out more. The arguments against, when there have been arguments against what I said, they've been, look, these types of ad placements are not that common, right? They're not even the most common ad placements within hyper-casual games. A lot of hyper-casual games have shifted over to rewarded video ads. That's true. Uh, a lot of hyper-casual games only show uh, post-level interstitials. That's true. A lot of those interstitials are closable after five seconds. That's true. But that's not the entirety of the ads landscape for hyper-casual games. And if you look at the most downloaded hyper-casual games on a long-term basis, yeah, a lot of them are fun to play. They don't have a lot of ads that interrupt gameplay, right? But the problem is there are games every single month that rocket up the charts, that become the most downloaded or the second most downloaded or whatever game that month that do employ these practices, right? And they bring a lot of the new money and a lot of the new users into the hyper-casual ecosystem. Right. If you because one thing that I think it's, it's well known at this point, but like the majority of hyper casual ad placements get sold to other hyper casual game developers. It's a big traffic trade. Right. Well, that obviously doesn't support an economy. If I'm buying something from you and you're buying something from me and we're just sort of trading back and forth that there's a there's a size to that. What what makes the hyper casual uh, gaming space viable is that these games now, because a lot again, a lot of this behavior um, ha- has, has already been sort of like self-policed by publishers. What makes the hyper-casual games category viable is these games that don't abide by those practices. And they do stuff the game full of uh, interstitial pop-ups that you can't control. And they do, uh, you know, traffic in ads that can't be closed after five seconds. And, and that's, what, that's what brings all the fresh money in, right? Because what's not, I think, what's, what's less sort of popularly known about this space is that any, any game advertiser that doesn't, published hyper-casual games has, for the most part, uh, put all the biggest hyper-casual games on an exclusion list. And they don't buy from them. They don't buy that traffic. It's all traded amongst hyper-casual games. And so what happens is you get a new hyper-casual game that's not known to publishers, that's not on an exclusion list. They buy a lot of traffic. They bump it up the charts. And the reason they're able to do that is because they have all this aggressive monetization, right? So the LTV supports actually spending money against it to, to rocket it up the charts. And then you see what happens. It shark fins very quickly because 
the casual game developers say, oh, wow, look, we're buying a bunch of traffic from this game. It's, it's a new game. We've got to put it on an exclusion list. And as soon as it happens, it plummets, right? But in the meantime, it brought a ton of new money and a ton of new oxygen into the space, right? And that's what supports the hyper-casual game economy. So it doesn't matter that a minority of games utilize this sort of ad placement practice. It doesn't matter that a minority of games use these ad placements or uh, 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 interstitial ad placements that can't be closed after five seconds. The minority that do basically are the foundation of that economy. And if you take those out of the economy, the rest of it is going to collapse because where are they going to buy users from, right? Or where's the money going to come from if they're just trading amongst each other, right? And it's, it's kind of like, it, I don't want to say a Ponzi scheme, but it sort of is, right? You're bringing new money in only on the basis that they don't really know what they're buying. And as soon as they do know what they're buying, they pull it out, right? Well, if those games don't get past review anymore or they get blocked, then there's no new money. And it's just a bunch of hyper-casual games trying to buy from each other, but they all... The, the, and, and, but they're all losing the, the CPMs, right, that, that were supported by that game that's not playing by, you know, these new rules or, the, the, or by the game that was, was instituting these practices, right, which no longer will be permitted. So that's my point. That's my argument. Now, you can disagree with that thesis and you could say, well, that doesn't matter. That's a tiny minority of, of players or whatever. But I, I, I published this on Twitter. Like, I went on Sensor Tower. I looked at the most downloaded games, game category whole category, most downloaded apps in the games category prior 30 days. I did this a couple days ago. And like they were the, the sort of perennial top downloaded. It was like Roblox, whatever. The first hyper casual game I came to was a game called Snow Race. So I clicked on it. The ratings were like 2.5, like ads, 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 all like, you know, all the one stars were saying like, oh, it, I see an ad when I didn't do anything. I see an ad in the middle of gameplay, right? That was the ninth most downloaded game for like July right, in, in, in the US, for, in the games category, right? And so if that's happening, if you do, if you do and, and I didn't go any further than that, I, I stopped, and I'm working on an analysis now and I'll have more examples, but it's, it doesn't matter if it's a minority, if that was the ninth most downloaded game, then obviously a lot of people are being exposed to this. It's not a nothing burger. There, it obviously does impact a lot of people's gaming experiences and you can play this game, it's called Snow Race. I mean, you open it up and you're instantly hit with ads. It's ads every couple seconds. Right, and that's the point. It doesn't matter that all games don't do this. Of course not. It doesn't matter that it's just a minority of games that do that. The minority of games that do that supply the basically the, the economic foundation for the whole category. And if you get rid of that, then the whole category is going to collapse. That's my point. Now, a lot of people said, well, well, these game developers will adapt. They'll find ways to build metagame and to do more rewarded ads. Yeah, fine. I bet they will. But then they're not making hyper-casual games anymore. Right? They're making casual games. And, the, and, and in the same way, the category is still sort of like uh, has, has gone extinct, right? So that's my point. You can disagree with that thesis, but that's the thesis. Now, if you come back and you say, well, I don't agree, you have to say why, right? And I'm working on bringing some data to this discussion because it's just been a lot of opinion and a lot of like emotional opinion because yeah, if you make a hyper-casual game studio and, or if you make, if you own a hyper-casual game studio and I say, I think it's going to die, I understand why, why, why your reaction to that, uh, is, is emotional, right? And, and, and I understand why, why you vehemently want that to not be true. Um, but, but what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to bring some data to this discussion, hopefully provide a clear, concrete thesis that everyone sort of agrees, at least they understand. And now if people disagree with the thesis, love to hear data that supports why you disagree with the thesis. Yeah. Uh, to be honest, I actually really appreciate seeing that debate. I don't think Ethan and I could I, I, <laughs> act, like actively I, debate you at all I, on I this. I have not a, not a debate, but a little bit of developer perspective because I ran not a high, like 
Eric, in your uh, thesis, you wouldn't put Subway Surfers or Tetris into hyper-casual. You would just call them casual games, even though their ad revenue is majority is the majority of the revenue stack, probably, for that type of game. Right? No, I, I probably wouldn't call them hyper-casual. I mean, to me, hyper-casual yeah. is just very lightweight gameplay uh, with like no sort of retention profile to speak of. Got it. Okay. Yeah, because, I, I mean, as a developer who, who helped run one of these majority ad games, I uh, am in favor of Google's uh, sure. new rules yeah. because they make... These are the types of things I was trying to keep out of the game to improve the player experience. And it's tough when you, you know, you don't have a lot of control or, you know, like the ad networks, it feels like are always kind of pushing things into the experience that you might not want or new games launch that crash it. So any, anything that, that improves the player experience, um, is positive in my book. And at least the game I had the most exposure to, you know, rewarded videos, um, provide a lot more revenue than you know the interstitial junk doesn't really right work that well so you know i i think it's a, a player focused update and it's beneficial for the industry and and uh you know if if hyper casual games can adapt and find a little extra monetization from better you know more respectful to the players practices uh that's positive to me yeah to be honest i think it's like it, eric to your point of if this forces hyper-casual developers to add metagames and add progression and shift towards more rewarded ads, then this is a positive yeah. change, right? This just turns our games into better live services, which I think is a better category to exist. Yeah, and, and exactly. And I think the other argument that I've gotten is, well, why would Google want to kill hyper Why would they want to do that? Why would they want to kill hyper-casual games? A lot of people play hyper-casual games. Well, look at the reviews. This is not good for their platform. They don't make any money on it either. Right. If it's all ads, I mean, Google might make a little bit of money from these because they serve ads in them. Right. But they're not making that much money. And it's it's also, you know, it's a hostile experience in a lot of cases. Right. And anyway, you'd rather have people playing games that retain that have like kind of long term player value. You'd rather push people into those types of games than in hyper casual games which are basically just like one to three day churn machines, right? You know, I wrote an article about this last week and kind of touching on the hyper casual stuff a little bit, but more talking about why you don't want to get in that trap, right? I called it the monetization trap, right? And it's like, you don't want to build games where you're constantly having to drive new users into them until you get a saturation point because they churn out in one to three ga- days. And then you're having to constantly publish new stuff um, because you're, the games just decay because you've that, you know, you've churned through the whole TAM. You want to build stuff where there's long-term value uh, and, and where players retain for a long time. That's a much better proposition as a company, right? And I think that's why a lot of hyper-casual studios anyway had transitioned away from the grind of just constantly having to find new stuff to publish and, you know, pushing users into them that are going to churn out in one to three days because they want to build games that actually have like a long-term value proposition where there's retention Right. Where there's, uh, you know, where there's there's more than just like extracting uh, ad 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 monetization within like, you know, a couple sessions. That's not that's not really a sustainable business. Completely agree. Because to be honest, hyper casual games are fun games. Right. Like if if you removed all the ads, you removed all that stuff. These are all really, really fun games. But uh, the experience with ads is something else. Ethan, you wanted to get into some updates on Blizzard? Yep, I've, I've got a couple news updates. The first one I wanted to cover is from Bloomberg. 
uh, the story that Blizz- Blizzard and NetEase scrapped Warcraft mobile game after financial financing dispute. So a uh, quote from the article, Activision Blizzard and NetEase have torpedoed a World of Warcraft smartphone game that has been in development for three years. NetEase has disbanded a team of more than 100 developers tasked with creating content for the title. The two companies disagreed over terms and ultimately called a halt to the project. So it's not surprising to me that uh, Blizzard and NetEase were collaborating secretly on a Warcraft title, but it is quite surprising that they would uh, tank it this this far into it, especially given uh, Diablo Immortals' $100 million plus grossing success. Uh, a great uh, partnership between Activision and, and NetEase. And in another article, Activision reported that mobile games were more profitable than console and PC combined uh, in the most recent quarter. So uh, there's a lot of proof that bringing WoW to mobile can add a meaningful new leg to the Activision revenue stool. And there's also proof that the partnership with NetEase uh, works for players and, and creates a game that drives revenue. So I, I've obviously never been involved with some with a project of, of this size and scope and this sort of collaboration, but um, I just wonder what what could go into getting it tanked. Like I could see um, maybe that there was uh, not enough progress considering the costs and time investment in three years. Maybe it just wasn't good enough. Uh, maybe one side or the other wanted a bigger piece of revenue than they originally uh, agreed on. And uh, that that there was a fight, you know, trying following the success of Diablo, Immortal, or or I could see a case maybe with the acquisition, uh, I could picture Activision saying, "Hey, let's ignore the sunk costs. It's more valuable for us to have a completely owned World of Warcraft mobile. Let's do that ourselves and keep a hundred percent of our revenue." Um, instead of even that will be more profitable if we include the sunk costs that we've put into this collaboration so far. So, um, you know, just a, 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 a surprising cancellation uh, given what's publicly known. And um, yeah, guys, any thoughts on, on this, uh, this cancellation? If I were to bet and speculate, it's probably because Activision wants a bigger piece mm-hmm. of the pie. Yeah, so after... Um, but it's... But as we've covered a million times before with, with Blizzard and the the risks of kind of pulling PC console IP to mobile, um, it's not going to be easy. I don't know if they have the talent at Blizzard to be able to build a game like Diablo Immortal on their own, right? Yeah, I just, I don't know. I would say like as a fan and as someone who grew up playing Warcraft, I'm, I'm this development pleases me because I just don't want to see the legacy tarnished. <laughs> Right, like it's almost like why I just keep my fingers crossed that there's never going to be a Back to the Future remake, right? Mm-hmm. Like, please don't ruin that for me. You know they're totally I know, is, but right? It's, totally just is. don't ruin that for me, please. Like, and, like, man, when I don't know, I won't, I won't go there. But it's just like, don't ruin. Like, that's my childhood. Don't ruin it. Don't, don't. Don't destroy the memories, right? Somewhere <laughs> in Hollywood, someone is pick, uh, pitching Timothy Chalamet on starring in the Back to the Future reboot right now. Well, no, I would. You know what? Hey, if you got Christopher Nolan involved, <laughs> I always thought Back to the Future, but much darker, right? That would be, that would work. And you got right. Christopher Nolan involved, but they're gonna turn it into some yeah. So like a memento thing where like they constantly go Ooh, back that'd and be forth interesting. between no, the no, timelines. No, I mean remake the movie, but just make it like darker and harder. I saw, you know what I saw? I saw The Batman on, on my flight back from Europe. That movie sucked. That was an hour too long. There was no point. Like, this, he's just running around. Like, 
I don't know if it, I mean people have seen it's you know the the sort of uh, the timeline for for not spoiling is over. So like basically it's the Riddler and he's kidnapping all these high-ranking city officials right and murdering them, and he it ends up doing it to like five people and it's like that that should have been two or three, like it was way too they, 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 there was no discipline in the editing in that movie so long and drawn out and slow, and it was an hour too long. Like don't do like that's what's gonna happen. Right, if they do any with all remakes, that's what happens. I mean, just like why mess with the Nolan series, right? Just leave it alone. <laughs> well, the the box office crew <laughs> somebody working, disagrees. There's somebody working at DC, working at WB. It was a great movie. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone should uh, rent it. But I also secretly agree with you, Eric. I did not like it. I was super bored. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I enjoyed it. Um, Anyways, Speaking of Hollywood, let's move on. Uh, 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 my next piece of news. This is just a fun one. Uh, Band, Bandai Namco and Wayfair Studios to produce a Pac-Man film. So this from Games Industry. Uh, two quotes: The live-action adaptation of the 40-year-old game franchise will also include collaboration with media studio Lightbeam Entertainment. The movie's narrative will be based upon a story penned by Williams, who previously worked on the Sonic the Hedgehog film. So it's a live action adaptation of uh, Pac-Man, hoping to capitalize on the success of Sonic. And I, yeah, <laughs> this is this is why I brought it. It's just kind of a to me, it's a fun story. So what did they? I, did, did someone in entertainment just go like, oh, what's the biggest? Video right. game IP. Pac-Man. Yeah. I know Pac-Man. Let's just exactly. do that. <laughs> I, I wouldn't bet on this IP for a movie. I, I just don't think the demographics are in their favor in terms of Pac-Man parents and the age of their children. Like, I was in the sweet spot of owning Sonic 1, Sonic 2, Sonic 3, uh, wishing to have Sonic CD, and having kids that are age-appropriate that they got excited about Sonic. Like, I'm kind of in the right demographic age. I think for pac and Sonic also had all those like TV yeah, shows, exactly. right? I, right, like through the '90s and early 2000s. Sonic, Sonic has built up a decent yeah, fan they, base. They have a consistent fan base over the years from many game releases, comics, anime, etc. Sonic is very enduring and has true, a uh, true fan base that I think kind of surprises people again and again. And and Pac-Man is a gaming icon, uh, but but I don't think he has the grassroots fan base or kind of the parent-child age demographic sweet spot uh, that Sonic had. So I think they're they're just learning the wrong lesson f- from Sonic. And if they were learning the right lesson, they'd be doing a live-action Digimon instead of a live-action Pac-Man uh, over at Bandai. Um, all right, that was that was just popcorn. That was a fun one. Uh, uh, well, sorry, it should be live-action Dark Souls. Live-action Dark Souls. <laughs> well, that also. Uh, <laughs> yeah, live-action Elden Ring is what they should do. Uh, probably they already are. Uh, my last news update. PlayStation Mobile out to acquire studios as it seeks more top executives. This is from mobilegamer.biz. They spotted a job posting. And these are quotes from the article. Uh, PlayStation Mobile will be looking at buying up studios once it appoints a new director of business development. Uh, They'll be responsible for overseeing mobile partnerships and will be asked to assess potential mergers and acquisition deals, investment, co-development, and licensing partnerships. And this is in addition to other roles they have open for mobile. Director of studio operations, director of mobile product management, senior manager for mobile game licensing, etc. So... I feel like over the years, we keep hearing news about PlayStation getting into mobile, making efforts in mobile. 
Um, and I think, you know, the most substantial thing we've seen is an uncharted uh, runner, if I remember right. Um, my guess here, or my hope here actually, is kind of a, a known PlayStation fanboy, is that the success of first party games on PC has renewed the interest in, in additional platforms, along with the success of cross-platform PC console mobile titles like Fortnite. And that there's been a lot of proof uh, how additional platforms can be additive to the business without cannibalizing console. So I'm hoping that they uh, see all that proof uh, in the market and make a more serious effort to make uh, cross-platform uh, mobile games as well as mobile originals. And, and I'm just... Uh, as always, wishing my beloved uh, Ratchet & Clank series will come to mobile in uh, a high-quality form uh, worthy of, of the great console titles. So uh, excited to see. Uh, hopefully it, it turns uh, into something more substantial than past uh, efforts. Any comments? No? No. Not really. All right. I think we've covered it. Playtika earnings? Right. Uh, let's... Uh, yeah, just quickly. I, wanted to, I thought this was interesting. So Playtika announced last night Revenue was basically flat year over year. Adjusted EBIT was down 10%. A couple of things to call out. Casual portfolio revenue is up 10%, driven by live ops improvements, primarily in Wooga titles. So June's Journey is the big hero of that uh, portfolio. Casino portfolio was down 10%. These are things that you'd expect to be the case in post-ATT environment, right? Um, driving revenue increases through live ops. Yes, that's what you do post-ATT. I've talked about that. Uh, casino portfolio having a hard time replacing churn players. Yes. Casual being the sort of better category for UA. Yes. All that stuff is what you'd expect. But I think what's interesting about Playtika, 23% of total revenues accounted for with D to C, right? That's the web-based, that's their, uh, like player platform, wow. the web-based platform where they sell, uh, where they sell, uh, in-game items. And that to me, that's content fortress, right? That's, that's interesting. Um, that's, that's the interesting uh, development here. And I think my sense, and they, they've been doing this for a long time, but my sense is, uh, you know, you're gonna see a lot more studios moving in this direction. Like you've gotta capture users uh, with uh, some sort of connectivity that's outside of the, the app store environment. Um, you've gotta find a way to give them like a central hub that's web-based. Uh, you've got to collect emails so you can, you know, be in touch via email. You've got to build that sort of secondary touch point um, and find a way to sell products there um, because, you know, everything you do in the app store is, is, is much more challenged now. Um, so is this true for even the non-casino properties? This is also like Google games now go through the direct to consumer web. Oh, that's portal? a good question. My sense is probably less so. I, I don't know. I don't know, to be honest, but and do you know if that 23% has been rising yeah, over so time? It was, like it, if, they, if they're, they're definitely sh shifting yes. to web? So first of all, uh, the, let me pull it up. Um, the D to C revenue is up as a share from, I'm looking, uh, from 20.4% last year, right? So it grew from 20.4% of overall revenues to 23.3. But more interesting than that, to my mind is Q2 2021, so a year ago, 51% of all revenue is casino themed, right? And, and then Q2 2022, this quarter, this most recent quarter, 46%. So that actually now they're making a majority of the revenue from casual themed games, right? So they're shifting 
the revenue mix to casual because that's you know easier to operate in the post ATT and they're getting a greater share of revenue from this sort of web-based platform versus the in-app um, you know the in-app environment so I think anyway that's I just wanted to call that out because I thought that's really interesting so the big themes here were live ops right drive more revenue from existing users because acquiring newer users new users is, is more challenging it's casual right because casual is where you know you, there's less of a need for sort of like precision profile based UA targeting and D2C trying to monetize off platform, right? So you get a greater share of the revenue that you generate. Yeah, 20, 23% is no joke. People should be uh, calling up their Exola contacts, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just going to call it Wuga here. And also, it'd be great to see if, if those titles don't already, but um, that casual portfolio is shifting to DDC as quickly as yeah. possible. That'd be great. Um, I guess in. Let's shift to less positive news. So um, the big news this week was Jam City and Ludia. Um, Jam City laid off roughly 17% of its workforce this week. Um, and it feels like pretty much every week there's been a big news story around major mobile publishers. You, you shared that layoff tracker, Sufert, I think a few podcasts ago. Um, and I don't think that's been slowing down at all. In the official text, um, it was in recent years... Jam City has made a number of strategic acquisitions, and this move represents the right sizing of our workforce to address redundancies associated with those transactions. Um, it's estimated 17% of workforce or 150 to 200 employees were impacted. And looking at that 17%, um, I'm trying to like piece together LinkedIn posts, but it seems that a lot was actually impacting Ludia directly, with rumors saying that it was as high as 50% of employees at Ludia, although I can't really confirm this. Um, note, Jam City raised 350 million in September last year, and then acquired Ludia right around that same time for about 165 million. So this is you know less than a year since that acquisition, um, but that kind of puts it on the timeline. So looking at the reasons why here, um, I think we we all really know. Right, like looking at Jam City's portfolio, it's a mix of casual titles mostly with IP, so casual matching titles like Disney Emoji Blitz or casual Investing Express or simulation games like Family Guy Quest for Stuff. Uh, Jam City's downloads really show the issue where downloads have been continually declining since COVID really in Q2 2020 with downloads down roughly 70% from that peak. And their top franchises, especially say Harry Potter, uh, actually seeing that decline in line. So revenue overall from that that time period is down about 34%. Um, but due to downloads and their continued decline, we can definitely expect that to impact revenue in line. So the reasons I think are obvious. Um, IDFA is making things challenging to launch new titles, even casual and IP-based titles. Um, maintaining download momentum compared to during COVID is a challenge. And inflation, interest rates, recession is forcing companies to cut costs quickly improve profitability immediately. So Google's latest decision, of course, is piling on to an already bad situation, but those would be the external market factors. Um, I think this will not just be a local thing. This will hit most gaming companies, unfortunately. And this is even for companies like Jam City that are, say, still private, still say, mobile casual, not just, say, Forex and Casino. Um, I think if you remember, Jam City even attempted to do a SPAC to go public um, but bowed out last minute last year. Um, and also I want to call out that that 17% has plenty of great people in it. 
Um, I'm a huge fan of Ludia personally, so it's sad to see great people getting gutted like this. So I think we'll link some spreadsheets into the podcast notes that have been passed around through LinkedIn of the people from Ludia and Gem City that contain their contact details uh, for those wishing to find new work. Because uh, I think we all hope that this restructuring, they take that in stride and end up in a better situation at a better company. Um, so my takeaway from this news, though, is, again, it's not, it's not an isolated incident, right? This is I'm already hearing whispers of other major mobile publishers doing further layoffs with some numbers much higher than 17, 20%, right? Um, my sense is that this is mostly impacting new game development in mobile and central services teams. And I feel like now is really just a terrible time to launch a new title with new title development just getting riskier and riskier and launching new titles even with ip sees faster cpi growth than ever before so even if you get something exciting in that launch window the idea that your ltv or arp DAO can keep pace with cpi is just less likely um, so the best advice i can give to people trying to avoid a layoff is to be as close to a live game that's making profit as possible um, and unfortunately like that increases in importance to the lower seniority you are in this industry. Um, and the best advice I can give to operators is, is in line, is that you shift as much of your key talent towards those live services as possible. So re reducing spend on new titles, especially speculative ones, and staffing up those live titles, not just keeping them lean and mean, but actually being able to staff them up and hopefully grow them over this time period. And I know that this time period is gonna be cutthroat, because it is. Um, but this is the market we're living in. Uh, we had a great run during COVID, but inevitably, inevitably the market will go through ups and downs. So I don't know. What do you guys think? Did I get anything wrong in my assumptions? No, here? I think. But that's that point is so important. I feel like new game development is just going to get, it's going to get, uh, you know, undercut here. And you're going to want to do exactly what Playtika announced they did with Wuga titles, is, you know, is to beef up the live ops. And to to work with the assets you you have, right? Which are the existing players. I uh, this is we're not this is not anywhere we're not even anywhere close to the end of this. Like this is going to be a drumbeat week after week. And you know the other thing is I'm hearing of, of funds that are not we're not able to close, right? Um, or they've run out of cash and to deploy in existing funds, and they haven't been able to close new funds like to use for follow on. And so a lot of, I think a lot of venture backed early stage startups are just going to shutter, uh, cause they can't raise follow on financing. Um, and you know, they were, if they were planning, they had 18 months of burn and, and they're at, you know, f the end of that. And they're, they're, you know, lead investors don't have the cash to, to come in. Um, you know, even if they're showing traction or whatever, and I'm seeing cases where that's, where that's true a lot of them are just going to go out of business, right? There's not a whole lot you can do in that situation. Um, from your perspective, Eric, are you seeing any disproportionate layoffs in UA people? Like when, when layoffs are hitting these companies, are they targeting and trying to shrink UA teams disproportionately versus, say, product teams? Uh, good question. No, I haven't seen that. Um, I wouldn't be surprised. I'm seeing a lot of, like, restructuring of UA teams. So, like, maybe the headcount stays the same or it shrinks a little bit, but it's really, like, the composition changes a lot. Um, so shifting more to like, you know, away from creative production, like, you know, high volume creative production into like analytics, um, because it's just the fact of the matter is you can't deploy as much creative now as you, you used to be able to, in, in terms of like testing it and vetting it. And so you don't need a huge team producing that week after week. That was the old strategy. It was just 
basically throwing a lot of spaghetti at the wall, letting Facebook surface what works really well and then deploying that with budget. Um, and that was just, that was like you have the live ops treadmill and you have the UA treadmill. Um, and that UA treadmill basically just is, well, the strategy's changed fundamentally, right? And so the live ops piece of that becomes much more important. And, and, and while people are still kind of figuring out how to run UA at scale now, you just, you have to emphasize the games that you have live in the market that are working, right? Um, and not take any new risks. So I, I don't know that I, I haven't, I, just to answer your question, I haven't seen layoffs disproportionately affecting UA teams, but I have seen UA teams be like totally restructured in a way that you just wouldn't do with a product team. But if you're, say, a UA person in the market right now, shifting more towards the analytics side, more towards, you know, measuring um, marketing campaigns instead of the creative production side, you think the former is where people are going to be sticking at companies versus the latter is more likely where layoffs are Yeah, I'd come? say like on the analysis side or just, you know, being more like analytically capable, uh, you're probably safer in your job than, you know, kind of pure play media buyer uh, or, you know, kind of like um, focused on, you know, creative production and, and you know, just, just th thinking up new concepts like that. That kind of thing is just not possible at the same level of volume. It was it was necessary, uh, you know, two years ago, three years ago. Makes sense. And Ethan, Web3 is just completely fucked. <laughs> I disagree. <laughs> I think uh, uh, there's still a lot of money deployed and to be deployed in Web3. I think, um, you know, when I think about the layoff and there's still a lot of market activity and, and you know, as I said, I've, I've started a company. I really believe that this is a long term play. Um, it's interesting thinking about, um, you know, on, on one hand, on the in, in our kind of Web2 kind of mobile free to play world, we're seeing companies that have been private for a long time, had for a long period of time access to infinite or you know access to easy capital and able to stay private and grow and you know isn't jam city like jam city isn't it sgn and mind jolt and acquisitions and uh ludia like they've been growing and growing and growing for a lot of time for a long time and they weren't able to stick the landing with, with their spac on time right they just got the timing off by like probably three or six months earlier would uh they would have at least gotten to that exit point but um working for vc on vc money is like working um on leverage in a way right your your the access to new capital isn't guaranteed growth is guaranteed and kind of if you can't stick the landing with the exit um this is is uh sort of thing is inevitable in a downturn and I think on, on the Web3 front, we've seen plenty of layoffs uh, from companies that got really big, really fast um, and are laying off, you know, uh, hundreds of, you know, exchanges and, and different layers and blockchains while others are thriving. Right. I feel like I hear nothing but good news out of Immutable and uh, Polygon and others. So I think, you know, it's just um, uh, you have to be smart about how you grow. Uh, you can't take access to capital for granted, and and uh, um, you know if you're if I, I think fattening up, rolling up a bunch of studios and going public seems to work much better in this Scandinavian Nasdaq than it does in uh, in the U.S. exchanges, I guess. Um, 
Yeah, probably better for Crest to rip on. <laughs> I'm, I'm saying as an exit strategy, right? We've seen a lot of companies. I mean, I think it's interesting the number of companies that have gone live on not the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ, right? Like um, Eastside Games in Canada, all the different Scandinavian co- uh, companies we know about in, in their local NASDAQ, and even Devolver Digital, who went public in London, right? Like, um, I think it's interesting that it, in this frenzy period, there were a lot of people who who did go public, who did reach the exit event um, in different markets. It doesn't always have to be uh, the New York Stock Exchange. But so I'm not I'm not making any commentary on their performance once they uh, went live as much as like, you know, we talked, I think, on a previous episode about huge games and about uh, Anton there. And, you know, Seifert, didn't you say like he he went public? He did the thing. Well, you know, all he's had all the fun. It's time to hand it over to someone else. So like just in terms of like the first, uh, the, the major end goal in the, in the life cycle of being a VC funded company, you, you, you got to stick the landing at some point or uh, ultimately you'll have to weather these storms and come up with a new strategy and, and, and a new reason why you should be able to go public again. Um, so I guess closing thoughts here, just um, get closer to live games, get closer to the analytics side on the UA um, and let's ride out this winter. Um, but let's move forward to AppLovin and Unity. Uh, Sufri, you want to go? Yeah, so I, I, this was announced yesterday. Um, I published a piece about it called AppLovin Offers to Merge with Unity. It's musical chairs on mobile. So just some, just some facts from the press release. Press release was pretty light, but just, so just, I'm just going to read some, some headline facts. So this is an all-stock transaction valuing Unity at $58.85 per share. For a $20 billion enterprise value, that's a nearly 50% premium to Unity's share price on July 12th, which is the day that Unity announced it will pursue a merger with IronSource and a nearly 20% premium to the to the closing price the day before this was announced, so two days ago. AppLovin estimates that the combined company would target a, could target a $7 billion revenue run rate by the end of 2024 with an adjusted EBITDA run rate of over $3 billion. Uh, AppLovin announced when it when it published this press release that it's lowering 2022 guidance for its apps business. Uh, in this new company, John Richitello, Unity's CEO, would become the CEO. And AppLovin CEO, Adam Ferrugi, would become the COO. And Unity shareholders would own 55% of the outstanding shares of the combined company, but hold 49% of the voting rights. So AppLovin shareholders would have the majority of voting rights. So uh, I don't have any commentary on this deal. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get more information, I guess, as it becomes public, but I just kind of have a couple of, uh, points to make about the broader economy that, that, that catalyzed this, this potential merger. Um, so we've got, I think there's a couple things that are happening that are generally not good. I think for like the mobile game app install category, right? So you think about non walled garden ad networks, right? So you've got obviously IDFA is something everyone's grappling with. That probably was a tailwind or that was a benefit that provided benefit to these, these, this category, right? I, ATT was a boon to the sort of non-Facebook, non-Google ad networks, like the pure play gaming ad networks, right? It was a boon. And what's happening now is, you know, you see probably some of that benefit eroding, right? So SK ad network 4.0, probably disproportionately good for Facebook. Right, probably shift some money back to Facebook, in my opinion. Right, uh, you've got the general mobile marketing winner. Like, there's just you know it's a challenging environment for mobile games, right? And I think that's that's 
that's hurting these ad networks, um, which basically only support games. They only service games, right? Um, then you've got impending, you know, further restrictions. You know, for example, Google is deprecating the GAID, right? Their wholesale deprecation that they're not doing an opt-in prompt, they're just getting rid of it, right? Now they're going to replace that with tools that probably work a lot better than SKI network, but nonetheless, there's going to be some, there's, there's some friction there, right? Relative to what exists today. The ad changes that we discussed at the top of the podcast, that's, you know, that's going to cause some pain to the hyper casual category, right? And so I think there's, there's really just no good news for this, this space on the horizon. And so, well, in that scenario, you'd expect to see consolidation and we've seen consolidation. We've seen a lot of consolidation, not even talking about these big networks, but early on post IDFA, you know, basically every DSP got acquired, every independent DSP, starting with liftoff. Uh, and then, you know, uh, there's a number of other DSPs that got acquired data seat just a couple weeks ago, got acquired. Uh, I was an advisor, uh, to data seat. Anyway, so you you you've seen a ton of consolidation happen already. Um, obviously unity had entered into an agreement or was pursuing an agreement to merge with iron source. This deal apparently is, you know, based on the press release, this was, you know, just what was written in the press release. This deal is contingent on that transaction being terminated. So we're going to have these three companies will consolidate into two at some point. We just don't know which two or which combination. I'm voting on Applovin and iron source. That'd be, that'd be, that'd be a, a, a curveball. But anyway, my point is like, you know, this, when you've got a, a pie that's shrinking, you want to be the biggest, you want to consolidate to become the bigger operator, right? Eating the pie. And that's where the growth is going to come from by, by consolidating up and stealing and, and taking more market share. Um, and, and that's, that's what these companies are attempting to do. And, and so we'll see, I don't know, you know, I, I don't really have any, uh, other analysis here aside from just like the high level market stuff it seems like yeah this would promote a lot of consolidation and that's what we've seen a lot of consolidation i, I don't think ethan or i can really comment on this um but uh ethan you got anything no um not not really i mean i guess uh, I'm, I'm just trying to think like how does it benefit an ad network to be part of a game engine business and i guess if if the goal is you know let's say 30 or 40 percent of the games on the market are made in that engine you make your ad services the best possible easiest to implement highest cpm for that engine you you get a big part of the market so it's my guess as to where it goes um yeah i i don't know i i i i'd love to see you know kind of like the the Jay Leno, David Letterman fight for Nate, uh, late night uh, movie that that came out once. Once this is all settled, I'd love to see the how the I'd love a behind the scenes take at how this all played out. What the resulting company is here? It's very interesting. Yeah. Very yeah, game we, I mean, we, we don't have a lot of information yet, so yeah. um, I don't have a lot of commentary on this yeah. specific deal. But I think it's just that you'd expect this kind of stuff to happen and in this mobile marketing winter, uh, which I'll promote my, my article series, uh, the surviving the mobile marketing winter, which I've, there's three pieces, there's three parts to it. Uh, I probably got a fourth one coming, uh, next week uh, or the week after anyway, uh, check it out. But, um, yeah, I mean, you'd expect this kind of stuff to be happening. I feel like Cress is like screaming <laughs> in the back of my ear from, from Monaco. Um, but, uh, we'll let him explode yeah. next week. Nice nuts. Um, and super, maybe, <laughs> Yeah, maybe you can maybe you can wait that one out. 
uh, we'll stay away from that blast radius. So let's move into uh, last bit here is just the crypto corner. corner. Uh, Ethan, you want to talk about Roblox? Uh, no, yeah, that was so me. But uh, we have two oh, Roblox oh, you want, you in a row. Let's do let's do I'll, earnings. Let first, me just do mine. Time. Let me do mine real quick because it's just a quick one. So this is from Bloomberg. It's Roblox drops after game platforms bookings miss estimates. So bookings fell four percent. Growth rate of daily users also slowed. But one of the points that the author made was interesting about you know gaming companies having been perceived as recession proof and that you know kind of not bearing out in this you know current sort of uh, you know recessionary environment and so I'll quote from the article gaming companies were long considered recession proof but that's proving to no longer be true during an economic downturn such as the US is experiencing now people normally have continued to consume entertainment including video games however now that many many games and gaming platforms including Roblox are free to play and don't require an upfront payment some gamers are opting out of unnecessary expenditures. So I wrote an article at the beginning of COVID uh, called What Happens to Free-to-Play Games in a Recession? And I made the argument that we don't... Mobile games didn't exist in the global financial crisis. At least the, the industry was, was minuscule, right? I mean, 2008 to 2010, right? Um, so we didn't really know what happened to, to free-to-play games, at least you know, in, in, in Western countries during a recession. And my, my hypothesis was that actually... You know, if you look at why gaming, first of all, gaming never really was recession proof. Even if you look at 2008, um, yeah, some of the companies did well early on, but they all took a hit, like 2009, I was at, 2010. I was at EA when they had huge layoffs then, right. and I found refuge in the hot new space, free-to-play Facebook gaming that was getting lots of investment. Yeah. So Exactly. So, so I don't think that this idea that gaming is recession proof is not really uh, anchored in reality, but, but even if you thought that, the reason it might have been is that like it's a substitute good like instead of going out to dinner and going to the movies and doing a date night you just play video games right it's cheaper and you get you get the you know the same level of of, of entertainment value but you spend less money right and, and so you just all you're just shifting your more limited budget uh to a different destination right and so well free to play is not really like that free to play is more like a lug so if you think the free to play category itself the games themselves might be substitute goods and they might even be better substitute goods than console games because they're free. But the IAPs are not, right? The IAPs are more, I, I argue that the IAPs might act more like luxury goods, which actually uh, perform worse than overall economies do in terms of contraction uh, during a recession, right? And I think we might be seeing that come, come, uh, come to pass, right? You're seeing a lot of these free-to-play gaming companies are, are losing a lot of revenue. Now, the comps are tough because you're comping year over year to, against COVID, right? When engagement was way up, people were at home, lockdown was still kind of a thing, um, at least outside of Texas. But so the comps are tough, and so that might explain some of the decelerating growth or even um, shrinkage. But but I still think that, like, if you think about, yeah, okay, well, the, the game itself is a substitute good, but the IAP is is, is, is totally unnecessary, right? And I'm not going to, I'm not, I've got less discretionary money. That's the first place I'm going to cut. It's this unnecessary purchase, right? Uh, given that I still get some sort of entertainment value from the free version of the game, right? Or without spending any money. And I think that's probably what's happening, but happy to hear any feedback there. Well, and also... Um, so one thing in the Roblox um, public announcement, did they talk about MAUs or any playtime adjustments? Like has monthly playtime uh, The changed? DAU growth slowed, uh, but I don't know about engagement. Like is it thought like is it falling in line or is it roughly stable? Because you said four percent bookings decline. My my assumption is in line with you, Zerbert, is that um, 
luxury goods, like considering that the majority of revenue from free-to-play games is coming from the top-tier purchasers, this is more of a luxury yeah. good. But I'm still expecting that engagement is actually staying relatively the same. Uh, I don't know about time right. spent, but so DAU was up uh, 21% year-over-year. Year. Uh, but it, it, in so, Q1, it was up 28%. So the DAU growth rate is dropping. But I don't know about time spent. And also, I mean, yeah. do you think I, I would I would hypothesize that no two games benefited from COVID lockdown school closures more than Roblox and Fortnite, yeah. right? Like think about a time when parents were under intense pressure. They right. were adjusting to work from home. Their kids had school from home. There was no extracurricular activities. Like I think uh, Roblox and Fortnite probably soaked up a lot of uh, babysitting responsibility and if you're in the middle of a call and, and your kids whining about wanting to buy a thing you might just buy the thing for them so they go away so you can finish your 40th zoom meeting of the day so i think as there's more of a return to normalcy i would just think of myself you know i'm picturing if my kids were three four years older like i don't have the it's it's uh there's a lot more a lot less uh, parenting burden now that life is returning more to normal and I would expect that to impact um, Roblox and Fortnite monetization. And just, you know, as a, as a, my, my personal opinion, um, my prior or my existing is that nothing is recession proof. Every market move, you know, if, if you assume, if you assume an industry will move with the general economy, you're more likely to be right than not. And so like thinking crypto is recession proof or gaming recession proof or anything in the entertainment business is recession proof. Like, I, I think that's a bad uh, hypothesis. All right. So I got a hard stop in a minute okay. and a half. Ethan, do you want to do you want to do this crypto Roblox thing or do you want to pass it off? Uh, to it's, it's only a minute. It's one minute anyway. So just uh, you got 60 go. seconds. Laura shared with me a job posting senior software engineer web three at Roblox. Um, it looks like they're looking for kind of a cornerstone engineer to do. Uh, research into how uh, Web3 solutions would integrate into the Roblox tech stack to hire people and mentor them, um, help decide the future of Web3. And so I, I don't think this individual job posting means that Roblox is necessarily going Web3. It's a smart investment to make of building people, you know, hiring people to do research, figure out if Web3, if turning in-game items into NFTs is part of Roblox's future or not. So. Um, I think it could be. Um, I think they might decide to go that way. They might not to it in the end out of just the age of their customers. Um, but I think this is the smart sort of research uh, long lead position uh, for companies uh, with a lot of in-game items and digital economies to make. Um, and I'd, I'd love to see Web3 at Roblox. I think it's, it's a really good ecosystem for it. All right. I think we can call it at that. All right, guys. Yeah, have a good week. Um, see you at Twig 96, 196. <laughs> <laughs>